Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kos The Brief. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Eleveld. Thank you all for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about messaging and kind of how crappy Democrats are at it, unfortunately. Not a lot, not a lot of good news on that front. But we're gonna, yeah. today, our guest will be Ian Haney Lopez. He is a law professor at the University of California, focusing on constitutional law and, get this, Carrie, critical race theory. Oh, how, how scared are you? How scared make you feel bad for being white? Yeah. There we go. You know what? I'm very afraid of this topic, and I don't think we should take it on. I feel like we should cancel it. Cancel CRT. It, weren't, they, weren't the Republicans all about cancel culture? Wasn't oh, that their big thing? Yeah, and they absolutely. were like, hey, burn those books. Get rid of that CRT that isn't even being taught. In, in, uh, oh, here we go. We've got a book. So, yeah. So Ian uh, Heaney Lopez has written several books on race and the use of Republican dog whistle, racist dog whistles to divide the American public on the issues of race. His most recent book from 2019 is Merge Left Fusing Race and Class Winning Elections. Carrie, we're about winning elections and saving America. And I think if this was written today, it might even say saving democracy, because that's where we that's where we are given the Republican Party. So his his um this is gonna be some controversial stuff. And he's he's willing to really dig into this. So it's gonna be a great conversation on how Democrats should message race. Unlike a lot of academics, he's not all about like what's in my brain. He actually has poll tested this and he's got examples, real world examples of how this kind of messaging works in the real world. He actually developed the AFL-CIO's guidebook on how to talk about economics and race as well. So that's going to be an interesting conversation. But Gary, speaking of, of messaging, I know this is you've been on this, right? Because um, yeah. Joe Biden just talked about inflation. And and we all sort of like bang our heads against the wall listening to him talk about it. So we're just going to play the clip. So, okay. Walter, go ahead and play the clip. I think it was back in July you said inflation was going to be temporary. I think a lot of Americans are wondering what your definition of temporary is. Well, you're being a wise guy with me a little bit. Uh, I understand that's your job. But look, uh, at the time, what happened was the... Uh, Let's look at the reason for the inflation. The reason for the inflation is the supply chains were cut off, meaning that the products, for example, automobiles, the lack of computer chips to be able to build those automobiles so they could function, they need those computer chips. They were not available. So what happens with the number of cars that were reduced, the new cars reduced, it made up at one point, one third the cost of inflation because the price of automobiles were up. So what I did when I went out and made sure we started to make those domestically, we got Intel to come in and provide $20 billion to build a new facility. A number of organizations are doing the same kinds of things. When can Americans expect some relief from this soaring inflation? According to Nobel laureates, 14 of them that contacted me and a number of corporate leaders, it's ought to be able to start to taper off as we go through this year. In the meantime, I'm going to do everything in my power to deal with the big points that are, are impacting most people in their homes. So, Carrie, when I heard do, that, you feel do you feel better? Do you feel confident now that you hear that Nobel laureates have been contacting the president to tell him <laughs> that inflation's going to go down over the I mean, I, I don't know. Do, you know what I heard, Carrie, and I'm going to let what? you go off on this because I yeah. know you've got thoughts. But I just want to when I heard that, I heard Donald Trump saying there's only 15 cases and soon there will be none. And then saying this will go away in three months. This will go away in six months. It's, that's what I heard. Yeah. Tell me yeah. how well, you received that. Well, I mean, they've got gotten at least away from that a little bit. Remember, initially they were talking about this being transitory. Uh, now, at least Democrats are treating it like a real issue. Let me just say this. Look, for I want to say more broadly that I think Democrats have a better shot than most people do. Uh, I tend to agree. We had Joe Trippi on. He talked about this. You know, most people think this is just going to be a total wash for Democrats in November. I think there's 
things that Democrats can really work with here and that this is, you know, we're living in ahistoric times. I just want to frame this with a bigger frame of we're not toast here, but good God, Democrats, you know, they really need to get on their game. And Joe Biden, if of all people, is capable of better than this. You know, empathy is his superpower. And he's talking about inflation. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, well, you're being kind of a wise guy. I mean, it wasn't a horrible comment. <laughs> was it? Like, it was, yeah, it was no, a normal question. It was a very legit question. So why is it? It was, suddenly- a, pretty, it was a pretty normal question. It wasn't like a Right. It wasn't a cheap shot. Right. I I mean, Joe Biden should just lead with his empathy here. But listen, I've been thinking about this and I don't even write. I don't write talking points for a living. Right. This isn't what I do. I'm I'm actually have journalistic training. But I, I started thinking about this and I was like, this is so first of all, this is the top issue for most Americans right now. Almost all of them say jobs in the economy and inflationary prices, price of household goods, et cetera. So it should be a talking point. I mean, a president's got a million things going on. You know, there's a potential war brewing in Ukraine right now. The Olympics are happening. There's, you know, there, there's so many things happening. There's a Supreme Court pick that he's got to make, you know, these type of things. But uh, please sit him down as all communications people should sit their Democratic, you know, candidates down, their congressional Democrats down and say, look, you're going to be asked about inflation. And here are the three or four things that you need to hit in every, you know, every time you get asked about it. First of all, number one, feel their pain. You know, these prices are outrageous. The price of gas and meat and dairy, it's just crazy, right? It's not that hard. Then plug Democratic work on the issue. Democrats can't miss the opportunity to remind people that they actually pass things to help ease these inflationary pressures, right? They pass the child tax credit. They put $1,400 checks in people's bank accounts. Um, they, you know, they ch- passed an infrastructure bill that was, uh, that, that's going to create hundreds of thousands of good paying jobs. So, you know, they worked on the consumer part of the consumer side of this, but then the, the other side of the inflation is the corporate side. Right. And, and, you know, then they get a chance to stick it to the corporatists because, you know, Navigator Research, which is a consortium of Democratic pollsters, found last month in their survey that somewhere around 70, I think it was 73 percent. It was nearly three quarters of Americans agree with the with the idea that uh, corporate greed is part of the, uh, one of the biggest drivers of inflation. So go ahead and talk about this and say, look, part part of what's happening now is a less, lesson in corporate greed. So many companies are prop profiting off a bad situation. We're working on that. They have record profits. Yeah. Right. So and have this record is not profits. Record exactly. profits. It's not inflation. They're making more money. Right. They're, They're gouging making the American huge public. money. And and then and then go ahead and tell them what you plan to do. Right. So uh, one of the things some people are some Democrats I know have just introduced a bill to suspend the gas tax for a temporary amount of time. I'm not going to debate whether I think that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's something that you can tell voters that you're doing. You can also you know, say they just amass they're They're working on um, putting the uh, America Competes Act on Joe Biden's desk, which is going to produce more semiconductors so that, you know, there there will be not such a supply shortage in terms of automobile manufacturing and whatever. So, you know, it's it's feel their pain. It's plug Democratic work on the issue. It's stick it to corporatists. And then it's here's what else we're working on. And this should not this is this is a it should be a good Democratic formula because what Democrats are good at is siding with the little guy, siding with the everyday American and and feeling their pain. And, you know, that's what Democrats like. That's what all their policies are about. No, you're right. So, Joe Biden's strength. And I, I believe very firmly he won the primary on the strength of that compassion. And yeah. and maybe even the general election is, is a that feel your pain idea. And it's amazing that instead he launches into a a history of logistical <laughs> you know, change. Yeah. And, I mean, I what mean, what is that? And and even from a practical matter, you know, $10 billion to Intel. So his answer is a corporate giveaway on a factory that won't come online for years. So we'll have zero impact in any kind of short term. So it was, it, I mean, yeah, when your answer is, isn't, I feel your pain, but we gave $10 billion to one of the richest com- companies in the, in the world. I'm not sure yeah. that really was 
quite on and point. not not everybody's buying a new car some people are just trying to get groceries right so like you know, I, I just don't know. I mean, it's so easy for Joe Biden to get there. I wish someone had just told him the first thing you need to do is feel their pain because that's something he's good at. You know, yeah, and you then his instinctual it, response as opposed to right, him if you want to if you want to reduce this down to two things, it's feel their pain and then get the get voters to believe, which I think is true. That for Democrats, they're going to bed thinking about this at night and they're waking up thinking about it in the morning. Right. But, it's, but Carrie, well, noble laureates. No. <laughs> they called him. I, I don't I mean, look, I, I like Joe Biden. You know, I, I think that he, there's a lot of things that he's really good at. This was not one of his stronger answers. And it just happened to be to a Super Bowl, you know, pre it was a Super Bowl interview, a pre-Super Bowl interview that probably got a lot more eyeballs than any other interview normally would. And then on top of that, you know, it included, it had a lot of different topics, but included this subject of inflation, which is a really top issue for many people. And I just think he blew that answer. And, and you know, Nancy Pelosi gave an answer on the Sunday talk shows. It was way, way better, way more in line. Um, so anyway. Do you remember what it was? Oh, well, I can um, I can probably read you part of her answer. Hold on a second. It's right here. So she says, what unifies us is the empathy that we have for America's working families and the priority of meeting their needs. Lower costs, bigger paychecks, lower taxes, all paid for by making everyone pay their fair share. Who is more sympathetic than Joe Biden? Who has a bigger vision, more knowledge, more strategic thinking about all this, more authenticity in associating with America's working families? And then she also at one point stuck it to Republicans and said, you know, was talking about the American Rescue Plan and said, look, they weren't even, you know, what were they, what was their plan? Were they going to let all these small businesses fail when we passed the American Rescue Plan in order to make sure that the American businesses, you know, she's like, what, what was their plan? They were going to let them just fail. You know, it's just, yeah, a, it's Pelosi's, so much better. She's not known as a great messenger. And so it's sort of kind of almost a little bit distressing that she's out messaging, you know, the president of the United States. Well, I, what issue. I will say about Pelosi is she's typically disciplined, right? She's not the most like she doesn't have the smoothest delivery of things, but she is disciplined. And this was a disciplined answer that she gave. Yeah. All right. I actually think this is a good segue to our guest because we'll continue to be talking about this messaging issue. Our guest today is Ian Haney Lopez he is a professor. He's a professor of law at University of California, Berkeley. So he's, he's actually one of my neighbors. He's also a guanaco, which if you don't know, and you probably don't, a guanaco is a person from El Salvador. It's sort of our Indian name for ourselves. So uh, he, he's, he's my brother here in Berkeley. And, and from a heritage standpoint, Ian, thank you so much for joining us. So I just wanted to clarify, did you say from a heritage standpoint or from a heretic standpoint? I mean, I think either would work, but I just, just as we lean into this conversation. Yes, no. is the answer. Yes. The, the gringa here is running from this conversation. I'm just running from this. No, no. We're actually going to be talking about you. <laughs> so, Ian, I mentioned in the end, in the uh when we first uh, start this at the top of the show, that uh, you're an actual real life critical race theory. You are the boogeyman right now. You are what Republicans are losing their minds over. So tell us, what is it like being public enemy number one as we head into these midterms? Well, it's wild, actually, because not only have I written and taught critical race theory for 25 years, but for the last 10 years, I've been focused as a critical race theorist on the way in which the party of big business has strategically weaponized racism through coded racial rhetoric. So it's like I'm a like a double witness in a way. It's like I'm both the object of their attack, but also a careful student of the type of attack they're lodging against critical critical race theory. It's pretty wild. What does it mean? What does critical race theory mean to you? So I think there's two big things that, that, that define critical race theory. One is the sort of substantive insight that race is foundational to society. And all, all that that saying there is, 
if this is foundational, race is going to work in lots of different ways. Let's not expect race to work in a simple way. Let's not expect race to be disconnected from anything else. And so it's really, on one level, it's really a big pushback against an argument that says racism, oh, that's interpersonal bigotry. It's it's somebody being a jerk and the victim of racism is the jerk's victim. And, and after that, we just close the book and walk away from it. No, this is saying want to understand democracy? Do you want to understand the economy? Do you want to understand our culture? Do you want to understand policing? Do you want to understand our trade, our foreign policy? All of these are intertwined. Or, you know, often I say to folks, do you think you understand everything there is to know about the economy because you spend money? Likewise, do you think you, I mean, because everybody everybody responds by saying, no, I'd have to study economics. You know, and I could study it. I could get a BA in it. I could get an MA. I could get a PhD. I could spend my career studying economics and still not understand everything about the economy. That's what critical race theory is. It's saying, yeah, we all live race. But just because you live race, your experience of race doesn't mean you understand the whole complexity of it. To really get that, you have to study it formally. It has to, you, you have to think about what's the relationship between race and government, race and the origin of this country, our limited conceptions of democracy, r- race and the distribution of power. That's critical race theory. Wait, one, one more thing I want to add, because this is very important. From the outset, Critical race theory said we're not just an intellectual project, we're a political project. Or to be more accurate, critical race theory said every intellectual project, every scholarly project is also a political project. But we are going to foreground our politics. And what is the politics of critical race theory? Fight racism, fight for a racially just, racially egalitarian, multiracial society. Right? It's always had that express political commitment. So Republicans have effectively not even, I mean, they've smeared critical race theory, right? I mean, they, it's not that they know anything about it. It's just that they've made it as Margot said, a boogeyman. So in a way they've, they've weaponized it, right? What are, what about Democrats? Like, have they just missed the boat on this or are they too afraid of it? What, what's your, what's your take on where Democrats are, have either utilized this well or really missed the boat in terms of this type of messaging? The thing to understand is what the Republicans are doing with respect to critical race theory is in some ways new and in some ways what they've been doing really since Richard Nixon back in 1970, when he really leaned into it. Now, In 1970, Richard Nixon, he started talking about forced busing, states' rights, by which he meant using coded terms, the right of Southern states to continue to use law and custom to segregate and humiliate African-Americans. He started talking about the silent majority, law and order. Ronald Reagan starts talking about the welfare queen, George H.W. Bush, about Willie Horton, the big black rapist, right? Like, oh, oh, these are dog whistles. As soon as this starts, in 1970, Democrats divide in how to respond. I just want to make, so people that may not know this, the dog whistle is named that way because it's coded language that is designed to be heard by their core audience, target audience, which would be, at the time, I guess, you've written about this, would be working class, white, non-college people, right? Right. Um, Broadly speaking. But to the broader public, doesn't seem like it's overtly racist. So, so... Yes and no. This is it's really quite powerful. When Richard Nixon leans into this type of politics, he calls it dog whistles. He also calls it his southern strategy. And the idea was, hey, it's southern whites in particular, especially working class whites who are racially resentful, but precisely because the civil rights movement has been has has changed the culture and has convinced Americans in general that naked racism, open endorsements of white supremacy, is a moral evil, a mark of somebody who's backwards. This is a politics that's going to try and stimulate racial anxiety, racial resentment, but use language that on its surface doesn't talk about race at all. And again, you're right. The initial sense was, oh, we're going to go after non-college educated white working class, especially in the South. 
Richard Nixon leans into it full time in 1970 in 19 for looking forward to 1972. In 1972, he wins in a huge landslide. And all of a sudden, the Republicans say to themselves, oh, this isn't just Southern. And this isn't just working class. The whole nation is racially fearful. This is going to work to completely reset American politics. And that's precisely what it does, right? So, so this politics it is incredibly successful. So back to the Democrats. The Democrats, they can see as early as 1970 that this is going to work. By 1972, they've just been like completely, you know, lost almost every state in the country. I think they held on to D.C. and Massachusetts and then that's it. Right. They just got the, the board just got wiped. They divide. Some of the Democrats say, yes, we are the party of civil rights. We will continue to fight for civil rights. We will continue to fight for racial justice. And we will condemn the coded appeals to white supremacy that the Republican Party is now using. But the other part of the Democrats say. It's not working. It is, it is in code. And that code is successful. And when we criticize Richard Nixon for appealing to white bigots, Richard Nixon was turning around and saying, hey, I just said silent majority. I didn't say race, but you did. You called me a racist. And by implication, you called my base a racist. So by accusing me of racism, you just proved you're the real racist and it backfired. And Democrats lost white support by challenging uh, Richard Nixon's racism. So I just want to underscore that point because we see it today where the accusation of racism is more insulting than the actual racism itself. That's exactly and, and, right. And That's- we just saw it with Mitch McConnell, right? Where he's like, I had a black staffer once, right? How dare you accuse me of being a racist? Like, that's the outrage. It's not, no, I'm not racist. Oh, that's, that's exactly it. And And this is actually... This is what's new about the attacks on critical race theory, although in some ways it goes back to slavery. But okay, so so let's talk about the main dog whistles that Republicans use for the last 50 years. The main ones are two. One of them is the physical threat script. So they start talking about criminals, gangbaggers, MS-13, Salvadoran. Right. So they, so, so if you bring it up, terrorists, caravan, knife wielding illegals, illegals who are rapists, right? So there's this, these, the the coded sort of message stripped of code. The message is these people of color are pathologically violent. They're pounding at your door. Yeah, the police key, aren't going to keep right. So they're okay. So that's you have people in Montana and Iowa freaking out about the southern border when <laughs> absolutely yeah, <laughs> when the people in Wisconsin are freaking out about the southern border. It's yeah. like <laughs> no, and they have okay. a border, but it's I like know a, it's like it's scary you're the well on your own damn border. <laughs> so so Ron DeSantis is trying to convince Floridians that they should be freaking out about the border. I mean, he's like, that's exactly he's what he's doing. Like, he's got the C on three sides. I mean, come on. <laughs> I know. But, and then he sends Florida troops to Texas. It, it, so, so, this is, so this is a really, really important script that we see laundered over and over again. So one is, this, one is a physical security script. And I say script because this is written out. This is a script. They're just performing this. They update it, but it's the same script over and over again. The next is what we might call the scarcity script. And it's a script that says, listen, public goods like good jobs or health care or good schools, they're really scarce. And frankly, they are scarce because the rich are taking them all away. But they don't say that. They say they're really scarce. And the reason they're scarce is because undeserving people are grabbing more than their fair share. The welfare queens the illegals flooding into the hospitals, the, the, the people cutting in line when you've been waiting your turn. Right? So these are these two big scripts. Now along comes critical race theory. And critical race theory is not physical threat. It's not scarcity. But it is this much older idea that people who are asking for racial justice aren't actually motivated by racial justice. They're rather motivated by racial revenge. That when somebody says, I want justice for black people, 
what they mean is I want to put black people above white people. That black lives matter doesn't mean black lives matter. It means white lives don't matter, shouldn't matter. Black lives should matter more. That's the attack on critical race theory, that those of us who talk about race, who talk about a racially egalitarian society, that we don't actually want that, that instead we preach hate. How much of that is projection and and how much of that is something else? Because I I just assume it's all projection, but you've studied this more closely. What's your take on that? It's the deepest sort of projection. It's projection that is rooted in a a self-justifying claim. And the self-justifying claim is racial groups are by nature locked into mortal combat. Mm. One racial group is going to come out on top. One other racial groups will be on the bottom by nature. And you see this, actually, this is a very important part of the alt-right, the way the white nationalists are talking today. They say, we're not racist. We're realistic. Racial groups inevitably come into conflict. And now the choice we all have to make is, do we want our racial group to be on the bottom or on the top? And what they do is they apply that logic to communities of color. They say, see, when communities of color ask to be treated fairly, What they really want is to be treated better than the rest of us. They want to become, I'll I'll use a term from, there was a civil rights case. It was literally called the civil rights cases. It was handed down in 1883. So not even 20 years after the end of slavery and the Supreme Court was striking down laws that protected African-Americans from discrimination. So this was an affirmative action. This is laws that protected African-Americans from discrimination. And the Supreme Court said, there must come a time when people cease to be the special favorites of the law, <laughs> right? Like, wait, 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 wait. We're I laugh years because... out of slavery. All we have here is a law that says whites can't exclude African-Americans from places of public accommodation, from restaurants and theaters. And the Supreme Court said, stop elevating African-Americans above whites. Favoritism. Favoritism and that was the logic. Sure. But so Ian, if, if you teach that, white people might feel uncomfortable. Uh, yes. Which we can't let people feel a twinge of guilt, perhaps. So this is the other thing that is, that is frightening about <clears throat> this moment. We are in a midst of a moment. We are in a midst of a class war that the rich have been winning for 50 years. And their main strategy is to wage war with racism as their proxy, to wage war by dividing the rest of us and by promoting the idea that we're mortal threats to each other. Before you get into that, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but um, you sort of set the stage in a way that it's actually kind of interesting in your book and writings, and that that the left, the Democrats, to, to sort of almost answer Kerry's question earlier, Democrats are in two camps, right? One camp says we must directly challenge racism wherever we see it and so that's sort of the blm and that approach right like me too we're not gonna we're gonna and i know me too's not race but we're gonna challenge these injustices and bigotry where we see it then there's the other camp and, and david Sher did a infamous piece just recently political or somewhere where he argued that we have to be race blind like let's not even let's pretend there's no real race issues because whenever race comes up democrats lose so we just have to just message economically no race. And this, I will even argue, that was sort of Bernie Sanders the first time he ran for president, right, where he completely ignored the, the role of race and he was just everything can be solved by economic justice, to which I used to always say, well, tell that to the Jewish people, because economics don't mean anything when you're being used as a scapegoat and to divide. So those are the two camps, right? That's that's the existing status quo, as that you is, see it, correct? That is where we are right now. That's right. And that's where we've been for the last 50 years. And now, frankly, let me position myself for 20 years as, you know, as a graduate student, as a critical race theorist, I was part of the camp that said, we have to denounce white racism. We have to do so. And people would say back, whites hold the great bulk of power in this country. If you denounce white racism, you're going to alienate most white people. And I'd say, then so be it. 
then so be it because racism is a problem people have to be forced to confront. And then people would say, do you really think anything's going to change? And I, as a critical race theorist, and here I'm channeling Derek Bell, who's one of the founders of critical race theory, would say, no, I don't think things are going to change. Racism is in the interest of white folks. They're never going to fully reform and give up the higher status, the greater access to material goods, jobs, neighborhoods, connections, boardrooms that they have through white privilege. Think racism is a permanent feature of American society. All we can do is speak truth to power. And, and to again, sort of flesh out that electoral argument for that side, because I think that's where a lot of Daily Coast lives, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, demographics are destiny. We have to energize and engage black, brown communities that are underperforming electorally. We we say that, but do we really even believe it? Like like when when I was in that camp, when I was thinking we need to build power with other people of color and the few white allies, 10% of white folks, 15% of white folks, we can build power with them. Did we really believe, did I really believe that we would have enough power between African-Americans, Latinos, and Asian-Americans, knowing that many people within those groups are just trying to do the best they can for themselves and aren't really committed to a model in which racially oppressed groups band together and fight the overwhelming power of white dominance in this country? Yeah, and And we're seeing that with voter disenfranchisement, right? Because when they do start voting... That dominant system's not going to sit there and let them participate. Not at all. That's right. And uh, also, I would say, you think about mass incarceration or racialized mass incarceration or mass deportation or the uh, the state investments in prisons, the state investments in uh, ICE as a police force. The state is actively involved in violence against communities of color. And I think... So, so from one perspective, and let me let me just add one more 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 point. And I'm really sorry I'm interrupting, but no, this no, is, no, it's, this is great. Our system is built, particularly the Senate, to benefit rural America, where there are no rising demographic groups to rescue us in places like Idaho and the North Dakota and South Dakota and Wyoming and Nebraska, which collectively have less population than pro- the San Francisco yeah. Bay Area. I mean, yet they had eight- about, If you think about the structural dynamics, the electoral college, the, uh, the counter-majoritarian structure of the Senate, um, the, the geographic distribution of people of color in cities and mainly whites in rural areas, even within um, many states, and then the fact that the, the court has essentially said, gerrymander to your heart's content, the structural factors are overwhelming. But I, I want to be clear, this is not just a structural story. Every major non-white group increased its support for Donald Trump from 2016 to 2020. Every yeah, that's major a pe- non-white group. I just want to be clear because somebody may think, well, then if he's stepped away from direct confrontation, then he's talking about race neutral, race doesn't exist left, right? Yeah, that's not what I, we're talking I about here. absolutely reject the idea that we need to be colorblind. I want to, I want to be clear. I'm not going to go there. In fact, here's what I'm really trying to say. I'm trying to say to the folks who want to denounce white supremacy, A, this used to be me too. B, I get why you, you're, you're skeptical of anybody who comes and says there's a better way to talk about race because we're being told that all the time. And what usually people mean is talk about it privately or amongst yourselves, but you're scaring white folks. Stop doing that. We want to do these other things. Let's talk about health care. Let's talk about fight for 15. But for the love of God, stop talking about racial justice and it essentially says to communities of color, We'll solve your problems some distant day when progressives have won power on economic issues. Don't hold your breath, but we, right? And it's like, no, that's we're it's not going to wait. It's right? always a wait for. It's always wait for civil rights. It's, it's always, always wait for wait. justice. It was, you know, it's wait wait for LGBTQ people. It's wait, you know, it's all wait for Latinos. Wait for immigrants. You're moving so too if, fast, right? You're moving too fast. So if we're so if you know. And, and I think the Democratic Party has been having this conversation, too. Like, I mean, they've been, been ha- having this conversation for much longer, but especially since it feels to me like the 90s, since Clinton, Clinton's presidency. Uh, but anyway, 
if I'm sitting here listening to this now as a viewer, I want to know what the solution is. And I think you have some prescriptions here. So I'd love to hear them. So how the, do you talk about race? So, the, so even before I get to how do you talk about it, because I've got some great messaging research. It shows that there's a certain kind of message that works. And then I show people the research and they say, you know, I don't want to say those things. I want to tell the truth. I want to speak truth to power. And I, I said and that like, to you when we had lunch. Yeah. And I'm like, I get that. I get that. <laughs> so I really want to start as a critical race theorist with a challenge to your audience. What do you think racism is fundamentally? What do you think racism is fundamentally? Because I know that I, for years, thought racism fundamentally, at root, is a white over people of color hierarchy. A single axis, white over people of color. Now, it connected with these other things, with gender and class, but, but more than anything else, I thought of racism as whites over people of color. And if that's how you're thinking about racism, then I get it. When you think to yourself, I've got to fight for communities of color, you think to yourself, I've got to fight white people. They're the bulk of the problem. And some of them are going to be my allies, but most of them won't. Here's, here's what I want to challenge you. Ask yourself this. Could it be that racism fundamentally is a weapon of class war that succeeds by promoting white over non-white hierarchy? Could it be that racism is fundamentally a class war strategy that succeeds when it promotes white over non-white conflict and hatred? And I think that's what's happened to us for the last 50 years. This was the party of big business, the Republican Party, that invested heavily in campaigning through racial scare stories backed very quickly by billionaire donors and their and their well-funded think tanks also <clears throat> promoting racial resentment and then followed by Fox News and an entire right-wing propaganda machine that pumps out racist scare stories and racist resentment 24/7 that's what's happened to us for the last 50 years yeah things like cancel culture because they're taking down confederate statues Obviously, the critical race theory, they're literally burning critical, books. Critical race literally theory burning itself. Books right now. It's they're freaking out over the halftime show at the Super Bowl. And now I want to push even further. Racism is invented in the 1600s. Why? To justify slavery. What is slavery first and foremost? Race hatred? No. It's a plantation economic system that is one of the most extreme forms of labor exploitation the world has devised, which needed some justification, so racism was the gloss. Same with the taking of land from Native Americans. The, the notion that Native Americans were a red and inferior people who could justly be exterminated in their land taken, that took 200 years to arise, to develop, to justify colonialism. From its inception right up until today, racism reflects the efforts of very powerful people to gather more power, to hoard power for themselves by promoting racism and racial conflict among the rest of us. And I, I don't mean to minimize white racism. It's there. It's active. It's spreading. It's getting way worse. Over. But who's funding it? Who's promoting it? Who's stoking it? Who's encouraging it? Peter and who's Thiel, laughing all the, the way Trump to the brothers. bank? Yeah. And once we think about that, and right, and notice this is a paradigm change. Once we think racism is fundamentally a strategy of the plantation class to get us to fight each other, whites are better off than blacks for sure. But we're still fighting each other while they run the economy and they rig government for themselves. It changes our mental model of what social change, what a movement for social change looks like. Now that looks like not people of color denouncing white people. Now it looks like white people and people of color joining together and having to build genuine solidarity with each other in order to save their own families, in order to build their communities, mm -hmm. whether they're people of color or white, the only route forward for any of us 
is to build power precisely across the differences that the rich tell us threaten us, because that's the only way we're going to stand up to this class war. You know, your, your, your idea that racism is a, is a tool of class warfare, um, it reminds me of a, a famous quote from Lyndon B. Johnson that I just had to look up because I couldn't, couldn't quote it specifically. But he said, <laughs> if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, he'll give, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. And I was just thinking like, I love just, that quote. you know, yeah, just that's just stoking that idea for a white person that they're better, that they'll just, they'll give away all their money. They'll just be, they'll become your tool, basically. Anyway. I love that quote. And I think it's important to remember, this is Lyndon Johnson, who came out of Texas, understood the South very, very well, but was also the last Democrat to win a majority of the white vote back in 1964. It's precisely because after Lyndon Johnson supported both a federal effort to end poverty, but also civil rights, that it allowed the Republicans to say, oh, you know all those things that government does for working families? That's actually a giveaway to undeserving Black people. That's precisely the move that Nixon makes. And it's been working now for near 60 years. And the question in 2022 is, are we smart enough to finally name it so that we can say to people, we're all in this together, whatever color we are, however long we've been in this country. But so some know, people I, profit when they divide us, and we must join forces across lines of division to take care of our families. So I know you've done some message testing uh, and survey methods to test this stuff, and you're going to have some examples for us. But, bef- but before we get there, so the question is, the best messaging in the world can it survive the Fox News effect? So when the Black Lives Movement first started, and we, we have civics, our, our survey arm, where we track real time, we saw support amongst whites become majority support, including uh, plurality, conservative white support for Black Lives Matter. Then Fox News kicks in, and you know it cratered, right? Amongst all whites, driven yes. by a collapse amongst conservative yes. whites. And they're all watching Fox News and listening to talk radio. Can the best messaging, and we're going to talk about your messaging, can that survive the right-wing noise machine? I, you know, I think that's such an important question. T- to me, that question really goes to this group that I call the colorblind left. So I've been talking about a group I call the race left. It's just a sort of convenient term to say the folks who say we got to prioritize communities of color, let's denounce white racism. But you got these other folks, the colorblind left, that say, hey, you know, we, we all need health care. We all need a clean environment. We, we, we all need decent wages. Let's talk about those things. And in theory, David Shore, in theory, that sounds good. But we're not talking in a, vo- in a vacuum. We're talking in an echo chamber created by Fox News. And within this echo chamber, Fox is saying 24-7, these goodies are being given to undeserving people of color. They're not for you, decent, hardworking, patriotic, heartland, rural America, code white. Instead, they're going to take taxes from your pocket to give to these undeserving, urban, lazy, entitlement mentality, read black and brown people. Right. And, and the sort of the, the democratic message, we're, we're, we've got good policies for you cannot survive the Fox world, okay? The new sort of message that I'm talking about does survive it. And the reason it survives it is because it gives people a frame to understand what Fox News is doing. So of Tucker Carlson, he's a millionaire shilling for billionaires by pushing race hatred. So now Tucker Carlson comes on and says, oh, Black Lives Matter hates, hates white people. It's like, there he goes again. Tucker, Swanson, Carlson. So it's like revealing a magician's secret. Exactly. And the magician can't keep performing the trick. Once people are on to the secret, they can see it. They're like, that is so lame. They're just doing it all over again. What do they think? I don't get it. There's Tucker Carlson, New York millionaire, pretending to be down with the working class by doing what? By spewing racist fear and hatred. All the while... 
he's laughing. He's making bank. And so are his billionaire backers. Are you telling me that that you've done a ton of research on this and polled and message testing and whatever, and you came up with Ronald Reagan's famous, there you go again? <laughs> Is that what it comes down key. to? That's the yeah. key, right? It's but it's a there you go again that works. You here's the key. So so what Democrats are doing, you can see this on critical race theory. They're always on defense. They're always debating the lie. Is critical race theory being taught in schools? Are there a lot of people cheating on welfare? Are there a lot of undocumented coming across the border? Is there really a caravan? If you're always debating the lie. A, you're giving strength to the lie, and B, you never have a chance to articulate your vision of who who you are and, and where you want to take the country. Don't debate the lie. Reveal the trick. Shift the enemy. Articulate your goal, right? So it's like they divide to conquer, we unite to build. That's a universal frame. And now we just apply it over and over again. They tell us that we shouldn't trust doctors and that we shouldn't wear masks. That's a bunch of bullshit. Of course I should trust my doctor. I, I, do you know what I mean? And, and why would they be telling me that? Because if they make me fearful, if they make me distrust public health, if they make me distrust government, they can more easily rig it for themselves. They tell me my, that, that my kid's teachers are teaching my kid to hate me and to hate the country and, to, and hate each other. It's like, I know that's a lie. I know that their real deal is to try and make me fearful of schools and teachers and of, uh, and, and of other people uh, in, in the neighborhood, because that way I won't notice they're actually rigging the system for their billionaire backwards. It's the same frame. It's there you go again, but with a frame that makes sense to people. And the power of the message testing that I and others have done is we've shown this story really does resonate. Like just about everybody knows. I'm, I think your listeners will know two big things about America. The system's rigged for the rich and racial conflict is worse than it's ever been. Put those together. Those aren't an accident. Those two happened as a consequence of each other, the rich to rig the system for themselves promoted racial conflict so that we'd be too busy fighting each other to stand up to them. And once you say that, people are like, now I have a frame for understanding what's happening on Fox. Now I can understand Donald Trump. Donald Trump. I mean, walking poster child for billionaire buffoon who profits by stoking racial resentment. It's all true. But you need the frame. You, and then once you have it, you can be like, I get it. I see it. I can see the trick. So what does that look like in, in practical terms? Okay. So depends on how practical you want to get. Uh, we ran message testing in 2017. There was another pr project done in 2018. Um, I did another project in, in 2020. I can read you some of the messages we tested. They're about 105 words. Takes about a minute. Um, Go for it. Okay. So, so I'm going to start. Actually, here's the way I'm going to start. I'm going to start by reading the Trumpist message that I tested in 2020. And this is important because... You know, I want your listeners to know it's like, okay, we're not just testing this in a vacuum. We're asking people, hey, how convincing do you find this sort of right wing dog whistle message? And then we're asking, is there a message that can beat it? Okay, so here's this here's this message. For folks listening, ask yourself two questions. One, is this familiar? Is this a good sort of caricature of Trumpist language? And two, ask yourself another question. Which racial groups are going to be convinced by this? Okay. All right. Here's the message. Our leaders must prioritize keeping us safe and ensuring that hardworking Americans have the freedom to prosper. Leaders who built a strong economy once can do it again after COVID-19. Taking a second look at China or illegal immigration from places overrun with drugs and criminal gangs is just common sense. And so is fully funding the police. So our communities are not threatened by people who refuse to follow our laws. We need to make sure that we take care of our own people first, especially the people who politicians have cast aside for too long to cater to whatever special interest groups yell the loudest or riot in the streets. Okay, so dog whistles. 
Yeah, safety and the economic, they're taking away your stuff. They're taking, they're taking your stuff. There's drugs, there's criminal gangs. When they're protesters, they're, they're rioters, this, right? They're not legitimate. And, and also, this is a key phrase, it's just common sense. Because what they're saying is, no, you're not racist. Of course you right. should fear illegals. Of course you should feel fear thugs. Of course you should hate welfare queens. And you should also hate the liberals who coddle them. Okay, so we asked people to listen to this, then to use a dial test, turn it up if you found it, if you felt warmly towards the message, if you found it convincing, anything above 50, warm, convincing, turn it down, negative, if you didn't like it, if you felt coldly towards it. The mean score, a, a warmth rating of 61. Which means? 61. On average, out of 100, people felt warmly towards this message. They liked this message. And I I think this is really important. And even among some people of color, right? The the number for uh, European Americans, 61. The number for Latinos, 61. (laughs) The number for African Americans, 59. That's a critical part of the story. It's huge. Their message actually resonates with our core base. It resonates with our core base. And this is partly what's happening with our core base. People want to feel good about themselves. In the absence of another story about how to position themselves in society, how to feel good about themselves, if the only story on offer is there's some good, hardworking, decent people, and then there are thugs and welfare queens and illegals, even people of color will say, I'm decent, I'm hardworking, I'm paying my taxes, I love this country. I know some of the thugs, some of the welfare queens, some, some of the illegals, they're my neighbors. And I've heard this in focus groups, they need a story. Now, just a second, when you think about the colorblind left that's emphasizing policy, what story are we offering people to feel good about themselves? None. We're, we're saying to people, we don't have a story for you to feel good about yourselves, but, but you should feel good about the policy wonks because they're the superheroes. They've, they've got briefcases the, full of, you know. The, the noble laureates that Joe Biden was talking about at the top right. of the show. Um, right. But yeah, it, it's your victims. That's the message, right? We're going to protect you from being we, victimized by the, by the racist right. I, one, way I, one way I put this, and this is very sort of colonial racist, but intentionally so, we're going to promote social solidarity on a vision of circling the wagons against the savages. It's a very, very strong message of social solidarity, but social solidarity against your neighbor. It's recasting your neighbor as the immediate threat to you. Right? Notice, where does the threat come from? People of a different skin color, people of a different religion, people who have a different immigration status. It's your neighbor it's a, or the people from the next community over. They're the threat to you. Circle your wagons. And people of color are listening to this too. And they're, they're like, am I under threat? Am I a good one? Where do I fit? Right? Okay. Now. And just, I, I know and we're so running out of time, but it's a podcast. We can go a little bit over, right, Carrie? Uh, yeah. So this is not just theoretical or polling, right? We Donald Trump increased his percentage of the vote amongst Black and Latino voters this last election. So I just want to sort of create that, this provide that bit of context. This is not an academic or just a poll. And like we saw it happen in real life. Th- this is real. This yeah. is okay. real. And when I tested this message and I, you know, was talk, I, I did a, a poll of 1,100 Latinos, 400 African-Americans, 400 white voters, the biggest single predictor of how people responded to Donald Trump's message was their sense of racial group position. So, th- which means everybody, what? everybody is anxious about where their group and where they fit okay. in this society. And Republicans are telling them all the time the answer to that is race. Where are you racially? And every group is thinking about that. Now, and, and, and just in terms of the basic story, too, think about the story that. A lot of us as racial justice activists tell people, we tell an identity story that says we're a country that is dominated by white racism. So white people can be allies, but mainly they're the problem. And people of color, you're mainly victims. And I got to, I mean, you can, you know, 
What's the what's the what's the dial rating on that message? Did you? So I can read you that message, or I can hold back for from a yeah, sec- I, I, for a second. Yeah, since we're running we're running short on time, I think uh, the gist is pretty, I think, explanatory. So it, it performs the worst of all the messages. This sort of message that says there's bigotry and racism in this country. Our country and needs it to live up to uh, poorly amongst people of color as well. Poor, it, it is the it is it performs the most poorly of all the messages across all the racial groups. Everybody, okay, again for everybody, and again we as activists are very comfortable with a message that says white racism is the problem. We need to pull yeah. together to fight it. But most regular folks in communities of color, when if we go to them and say, "Hey, systemic racism means your kids are never going to get ahead," they don't want to hear it. They, they don't want to hear it. And this is, this is part of the challenge. Here's the message that performed the best. Yes. We had come so far, but now COVID-19 threatens our families, for instance, with health risks, record unemployment, and losing the businesses we worked hard to build. To overcome these challenges, we need to pull together no matter our race or ethnicity. We've done this before and can do it again. But instead of uniting us, certain politicians make divisions worse, insulting and blaming different groups. When they divide us, they can more easily rig our government and the economy for their wealthy campaign donors. When we come together, we can elect new leaders who support proven solutions that help all working families. This is race, class, fusion politics. It fuses the fights for racial and economic justice, and it fuses them by saying... We're all in this together. People are intentionally dividing us. If you want economic justice, you have to fight racism. And if you want racial justice, you have to, you have to defeat the politicians who win office by promoting racial fear, which means you need, a, you need to form a coalition with white voters. Whether your primary emphasis is racial justice or your primary emphasis is economic justice or environmental justice, you need to build a multiracial supermajority. And the only way you're going to do that is by defeating racism as an intentional class war divide and conquer strategy. How did that message rate with uh, the focus group? That was the most popular message with uh, African-Americans, with Latinos, with persuadable voters so which, uh, of, of all races. It was the most popular message. So with whites, not so much? (laughs) No, so with whites, it's tricky. If you just do whites, then you're capturing the 60% of whites who are Republican or lean Republican, 60%, okay? But here I want to say something that's truly remarkable and really important. I tested a message for racial justice in criminal law, for criminal justice reform that used this race class frame. So in effect, it said, we know kids thrive in a a great community. Some politicians try and scare us about some communities. Then they invest in bars and police, mainly to distract us from everything they're doing to defund everything else we need. When we come together, we can reject their lies and have better jobs and more libraries for every community. Right, so a race class framing for racial justice performed the best among African-Americans. It was better performing among African-Americans than didn't announce white racism message. Better performing among Latinos. And to come back to your point, among white voters overall, it was more convincing than the dog whistle racial fear message. Wow. And this is stunning because... Whites for the last 60 years have been bombarded with a message that says we have to support the police and build prisons because they're dangerous thugs knocking at your neighborhood door. And the first time they hear a message that says basically that's a lie, the real threat to you comes from the people promoting this lie so they can rig the rules for themselves. More whites found that message convincing than the racial fear message. We are we are now on on overtime, and so I, I'm going to try to move this a little quicker. Uh, Stacey Abrams, you say, has adopted this type of messaging, right? I think if if people want to see a really brilliant, beautiful example of race class fusion politics in action, please watch Stacey Abrams' announcement video. 
It's, you know, that theme is one Georgia, it's multiracial, it's working class. And, and she says very clearly, we have to come together against those trying to divide us. That's the only way we'll create the Georgia in which all our families can thrive. Carrie, do you have any reaction to this? Like, well, what's your gut telling you? Well, right when when the professor put forward his first, you know, the first message test, my earphones cut out. So I missed it. <laughs> but I, I missed it's, that. It's scary, scary immigrants, and yeah, yeah. they want to take away but, your tax dollars. But, but let me just say, I'm surprised. I keep going back to how to how simple and yet how effective it does feel to hear, there they go again. Yeah. They're trying to divide us, you know, yeah. and they, di- they divide us to conquer and we, and we divide and we uh, unite to build, right? That's right. Yeah, it's such simple messaging. It's so easy to grasp and it feels so true. What, what is most striking to me is voters get it. Voters get it. They're not the problem. What's happening is that there's a sort of a political professional class that is deeply committed to the approach they've been taking for years, for decades. And it's there the hang up, right? Like like when we do the polling or or when group like People's Action take this into rural America, or you can see this also in Reverend William Barber's new poor people's he's campaign. All over it. He is right. He, this yeah, this is what he's, he's doing. He says, show. I'm doing fusion politics. People love it. But it's the it's the pollsters, it's the consultants, it's the candidates who say, oh no, we've only got two choices. We either gotta denounce white people or we gotta run silent on race. That's what they've been telling themselves for 50 years. David Shore is reprising part of that debate. There are other folks, you know, sort of repeating the let's just denounce white racism part. But it's but the voters, we do get it. It does make sense. Once you say to people, economic inequality is higher than it's ever been since the Gilded Era and we're at each other's throats and about to slide into white nationalist authoritarianism. And the reason both things are happening at the same time is because they're related. The rich pushed racial conflict so they could laugh all the way to the bank. Just about everybody says, oh, yeah. And and by just about everybody, I, I don't mean unanimity. I mean, let's but but we can get to 58%. We can get to 60% with this message. We've got to convince the professional class, the professional political class to say, oh, we got to get out of our sort of, you know, our, 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 our rut here and yeah, take but a risk. Can, can I just say that that's a power structure in and of itself? Yes. That professional class, they're, they know what they've been doing for 50 years. They've made a lot of money off of it and they don't want to stray from it. And I, I, I feel like anyone who has been a grassroots activist or tried yeah. to penetrate the, the, you know, mighty towers that exist in Washington, D.C. in order to say here, he, you know, look at us. This is important. You know, this is our issue. You must move on it. Or listen, there's a better way to do this. It is nearly impossible to break through to that class because of the money that's involved with continuing to drop, you know, bucket loads of money on ads that may or may not work you know, instead of giving money to grassroots groups so they can go out. And I'm just giving an example. So that they No, can go I, out I completely agree. And, and, and indeed, it runs deeper than that. We have a political class that is very comfortable with the economic status quo. Yeah. We have a political mm. class that in the main is insulated yes. from government violence against communities of color. So they look around and they're like, Seems like it's working just fine for me, right? So we have to create from the ground up a multiracial working class movement that is committed to the radical proposition that we should all have a decent chance to thrive economically in this country and the radical proposition that we are all equal and deserve equal dignity and that we should have a racially egalitarian democracy. Now, the... The good news is 
Democrats to win elections really almost have no choice but to pivot in this direction, right? It's like if, if they had a choice, if they're like, oh, I don't need this to win, I can get, but they do need this. Without yeah. a cross-racial solidarity message, yeah. they're going to lose in 2022, and then they're going to lose in 2024, and we're all going to be much, much worse off because of that. I think Stacey Abrams' campaign is going to be a sort of bellwether. If she can succeed on that kind of message, it'll it'll have salience. And and she's a she was governor of Georgia. She'd be a leader, prime leader in the, in the Democratic Party moving forward, and she'll have a lot of say in in those issues. So we really lots of reasons to root for Stacey Abrams. Absolutely. That's all the time we have. We're way in overtime. So, but this conversation was so good, we had to keep it going. Ian, thank you so much. That was an incredible conversation. Really appreciate you you coming on and talking about it. Carrie, you always. You're my favorite co-host. <laughs> Always so amazing. Um, thanks to Walter and Kara and uh, for being uh, for supporting the show, producing, promoting um, Dorothy for doing all the write-ups after the show and, and transcripts. And thank you, the listener and the viewer, for joining us every weekend. Couldn't be prouder to have you fighting side by side as we fight literally for our democracy. Everything is on the line, and I can't think of anybody I'd rather have at my side than all of you. So thank you so much for joining us. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at DailyCoast.com or on Twitter at DailyCoast. See you next week.